As a vibrant part of campus life, our chapel gathering at Trinity Western creates opportunities for us to hear and be changed by God's story in Jesus through music, teaching, prayer, scripture reading, and storytelling. We're glad you're listening in today. We hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. Hello and welcome to chapel. My name is Brittany and I recently stepped in as Associate Chaplain of Prayer, Arts and Worship here at Trinity. I graduated from here in 2017 and have been working locally in my church since then, but I am back for a season here. Um, First of all, thank you so much for watching. I know that it's a lot easier to access things like chapel or devotions or other online services and resources, Um, but it feels a lot harder right now to engage. So thank you for for stepping in. I'm convinced that every small but intentional step that we take in our spiritual formation matters. Um, Not that it has to be chapel, but whether we see it in a few weeks or a few years, seeking the Lord and putting ourselves in the position to grow closer and deeper will always, will always bear fruit in our lives. Because um, we, we read in the scriptures that when we seek God, that he will be found. Um, this is not the same as prosperity gospel. This is part of who God is. He will be found. He is personal. He responds. And that's what we're going to talk about today is who God is, is the character of God. But first, I want to share part of my story that led me to a place where I needed to know who God was. Um, I needed to know that that I could trust him, that he was good. Um, And this particular chapter of my life that I'll be sharing about was marked by loss, by transition and and some minimal suffering. Um, But it was the start of a journey of trust and confidence in God. So I'm going to start with April 2017, graduation. It hit me hard and my health took a deep dive. I'm still convinced that it was burnout. So honestly, just be careful, set boundaries, keep the Sabbath. You just don't want to go there. Um, These health issues kept me in bed for half the summer and they were the backdrop of the next eight months. I didn't have a vehicle at the time, so I bought a moped. 10 days later, it was stolen. Uh, Then June came around and my parents who had been in Canada for the year moved away again, which was another loss. July came and the police actually found my moped. It was smashed, we got it working again. Um, I actually think someone on campus has it now. So if you ever see a moped that is covered in duct tape, being held together by duct tape. That used to be mine, so that's the story there. It's been through a lot. Um, August and September, they were months with 
more loss, more transition. I moved again and Trinity started. And so some of my closest friends went back to school. And that was also a sense of loss because all of a sudden we were in completely different life stages and they're taking on student busyness, that whole life. Um, and I was not. And then here is where it starts to get good. And when I say good, I don't actually mean good, just maybe intense. My competitive nature really came out during a youth game and I broke my wrist and then found out later that I needed surgery. So I still have a bit of a scar there from that, but that took me out for another two months. And then I continued to struggle with health still, but then came December. And this is, this is a big turning point. I was driving home one night and I got into an accident. I told my car and I was left wondering why on earth God was this part of your plan? It wasn't just the one thing. It wasn't just this accident, but it just felt like these months and months of little things adding up. And all of a sudden I was left wondering why on earth God was this your plan. And I've been a doubter. I've had questions, but a lot of them culminated here. I grew up overseas, but my faith influence was a Western one. So like many of you, I was raised with the understanding that every single thing that happened to us was God's intention and perfect will for our lives, whether it was good, bad, traumatic, whatever it was, I believed that God's sovereignty meant that he was the cause of even the deepest suffering in the world. And I thought that the, that the hardest things in life were placed there for a reason and that God had to use them to teach us lessons or to bless us in ways that we otherwise wouldn't experience. Um, and please, please don't misunderstand me. That happens. That is what it means for God to be redeemer, that he does those things. He teaches us, he blesses us even through and in the midst of suffering. He's the redeemer because he will never give evil the victory of being meaningless. But evil cannot originate from God. And this is what I think I must have confused somewhere in my upbringing. God does not manipulate us into trusting him by these different blessings or lessons. God is not manipulative. God is not abusive. He doesn't treat us with cruelty or violence. That's, that's abuse. God is not oppressive. He doesn't use his power to keep us in servitude to him. He does not oppress and I can't claim to know all of his ways or the mystery of how God works in and through all things. But I know this, that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. 
and more on that in a bit. But this verse, these verses are from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This is where God proclaims his name to Moses. So for context, in the previous chapter, Exodus 33, Moses asks Yahweh to show him his glory. And glory here doesn't mean fame or credit like it does in the Western context. It means presence or beauty. Moses is asking God to show him what he is like. And God responds by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name before you. Now, a name in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it wasn't just a title. It said something about that person's character or identity. So when you read about name changes in the Bible, that always happens when something about that person's identity changes. So Abram, for example, meant exalted father, but after God makes his covenant with Abraham, he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Or Jacob, that name meant deceiver, and that was part of his identity. That was part of his story. He used deception to steal his older brother's birthright. But then later on in Genesis 32, after he wrestles with God, his name changes to Israel, which means God fights. So it's more than just a new label. It's a new nature. And side note, whenever you sing about God's name, Start thinking about it in terms of God's character or his identity. Think about what you're, what you're saying about who God is when you sing, worthy is your name, um, or lines similar to that. So in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which by the way is the most quoted verse in the Bible by other biblical authors, so they'll always be circling back to this verse more than any other in the entire library of scripture. And that itself should signal to us that it's significant. Um, in these verses, God proclaims his name. He proclaims to Moses who he is, what he is like. So let's read it again. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. And in this, he distinguishes himself from other lowercase gods. He is the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. First of all, Notice that this is not about what God can do, what he's capable of. God doesn't list here that he is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, the, the Sunday school terms that we use to describe God. Um, this is all about who God is. So we'll start from the top, compassionate and gracious. These two words are often paired together in scripture, and that's because Compassionate is a feeling word. Um, its root comes from, from the word that means the way a mother feels towards her child in the womb. That's how God feels towards you. And gracious is an action word. It's something that you do to show favor. So 
Feeling and action, they go hand in hand. God feels compassion and he acts on it with grace. One example is Nineveh. This place was a wreck. They oppressed Israel with extreme violence and heavy taxes. They were a very violent people, so they would skin and behead people and display that at the front of their city. And so Jonah, in this story, when God calls him to give a message of repentance, he doesn't exactly have a heart for Nineveh, and he runs away because he knows. He says, I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. And he quotes this verse, compassion and grace is part of who God is. That's what he is like. And it doesn't just stop with the, the Israelites, the people of Israel. God's whole redemptive purpose with the nation of Israel was to bring all nations to himself, even the people in Nineveh, because that is what God is like. He is full of compassion and he doesn't stop there. He acts on it with grace. Moreover, he is slow to anger. And this is a Hebrew idiom meaning long of nostrils, referring to a breathing pattern. So what I want you to do is to take a deep breath in right now. And out. When your breathing is slow, can you imagine yourself having a temper, getting really riled up? No. This phrase illustrates two things. First, that God is slow to anger. Not quick-tempered. He's not ready to smite you because he's in a bad mood. No, he's slow to anger. And later translations in the Septuagint or in the Greek translation of the Hebrew would use the word patient. God is patient. But the second thing is that God does get angry. He's slow to anger. It's, it's far away. It's not his first response. He's slow to anger. But he does get mad. The scriptures bring up God's wrath. Who is it directed to, though? It's directed to the wicked, to those who breed injustice. God's anger is not like our anger or my anger. Oftentimes mine is out of ego or impatience or whatever it is, but God's anger is not. God's anger is patient. My anger is usually unjust in some way. God's anger is just. It's justified. He's angry at wickedness, evil, and rebellion. But most importantly, his anger is born out of love. He is not some angry tyrant in the sky. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm going to keep reading to the end. Maintaining love to thousands of generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now people often miss that this last part is a comparison. He shows love to thousands of generations from punishment to the third and fourth. 
there's there's a scale here used as as imagery punishes to the third and fourth but shows love to thousands and thousands and yet this punishment is often what we call the consequence of sin so if a family is broken by the sin of adultery and divorce who will that affect that affects the children and their children that punishment affects the children and their children for the sin of their parents um, and it goes on for generations um, that's often what we call generational sin generational patterns as well um, and that can be broken in the power of God um, because he maintains love to thousands and thousands of generations um, but that last phrase isn't just about generational sin. It's also a reminder that God will continue to punish and oppose sin in every generation. Morality isn't arbitrary. What was wrong then doesn't suddenly now become okay. Um, but back to his love. His love isn't for a select few. It's for thousands of generations. And his Forgiveness. Forgiveness is mentioned 658 times before we even get to the New Testament. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You'll hear this all over the Psalms, but particularly in Psalm 51. Um, David, he cries out for mercy. He calls on God's character. He says, according to your unfailing love, according to your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity or my rebellion and cleanse me from my sin. This psalm was written when he just gotten Bathsheba pregnant and killed her husband. Yet David knows who God is and he calls on his character. Saying, God, you are compassionate. Your love is unfailing. So be true to your character and forgive me. And God forgave. God forgives because that's who God is. That's what God is like. He's not reluctant to forgive. Why? Because he doesn't just forgive, he is forgiving. God is forgiving, that's who he is. And yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. We cringe at this part, but Praise God that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished for those who are wreaking injustice on the world. It's a good thing that God clarifies that he is just because God's end goal is a world without sin, a world that is set free from injustice. This is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger bounding in love and faithfulness. This is who God is. So back to my car accident. I labored over the questions after it happened. And it wasn't like this was a massive trauma. I, I came out without a scratch, praise the Lord. But I was still, I was still so caught up in these questions. It was still a turning point because for me, these questions, they couldn't go unanswered anymore. God is not indifferent towards your hurting, your apathy, whatever it is that you're going through. He feels compassion towards you. And he acts graciously towards you. 
God is slow to anger. He's not ready to fly off the handle at you. He does get angry, but his anger is not like ours. His is out of love because he is abounding in love and faithfulness. And his love for thousands far outweighs his punishment. And yet God is faithful. He is just. And he'll redeem everything, anything and everything that the, that the enemy means for evil. So cling to this, cling to the character of God, because when you face doubt, when you face suffering, when you face loneliness, that's a really big one right now, you need to know who God is. God didn't create loneliness. In fact, it's the one thing that he says is not good in the garden. Have you ever noticed that? That Eden, it wasn't a utopia. It, uh, evil already existed. The snake was already there, but that's another sermon. Um, a few takeaways. First, memorize these verses, study them, and get to know God. This is something that will pay off in your life. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And remember that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Everything that we know about who Jesus is, that's who God is as well. So the Jesus who called out the Pharisees and ate with the sinners and the tax collectors, his character is the same as God the Father. And I think sometimes we confuse that. Or we think that God is the angry one who deals out the punishment and Jesus is the nine who wants to keep the peace, make sure everyone is happy. No, they're the same. Jesus is God in flesh and blood, fully God and yet fully human. And the second takeaway is that this is, this is who God calls us to be. We're called to be like God, to bear his image and to represent him to the world. So Ask yourself these questions. Am I compassionate? Am I gracious? Am I slow to anger? And so on. And it might be a bit sobering, but when we are commanded to not take the Lord's name in vain, usually we think that, oh, that's don't say God's name in the wrong context, in vain. It's more than that. We are not to misuse his name doing things in his name that aren't according to his character. Like saying, God told me as a way to justify your own choices for something, that's misrepresenting God. That's, that's using his name for your own advantage. Um, but more than that, we, we carry the name of God. We, we represent him to the world because he invites us to it. He says to be holy for I am holy we are called to be a kingdom of representatives, to show the world what God is like. And I'm afraid that right now people, a lot of people just don't know anymore because they look at the church and they see the hypocrisy and the patriotism rather than the justice and the love. And you, you have a part to play in representing God to the world and showing the world what he is like. So today I urge you to be part of a generation that carries the name of God instead of profaning it. Learn about his character, get to know God. Um, I have a few resources that I'm very willing to share with you, so feel free to contact me. Um, but know this, know that God is good and he is who he says he is. 
his character is unchanging. He remains consistent. Um, I pray that you would receive this invitation to be holy as God is holy. Thanks for listening. We hope to worship with you at our next broadcast online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with Chapel and Student Ministries by following us on Instagram at TWUChapel and at TWUStudentMin. Much love. Thank you.